Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to The Dark Side of Your Emotional Needs, Part 5, which is how the need for community and connection can lead to distress, cruelty, and self-destruction. We are like islands in the sea, separate on the surface, but connected in the deep. So said the uh, amazing psychologist William James. In crowds, it is stupidity and not mother wit that is accumulated. And that was the uh, psychologist uh, Gustave Le Bon who uh, wrote uh, about the madness of crowds. Okay. Fascism, what an emotive word. It's a word that's become synonymous with violence, hate, racism and persecution. But the term wasn't always an insult. Indeed, in the early days of Italian fascism, uh, it was President Franklin D. Roosevelt who said uh, the following words, I am much interested and deeply impressed by what he, Mussolini, has accomplished and by his evidenced honest purpose of restoring Italy. Now, the word fascism comes from the Roman uh, fascis, meaning a bundle of sticks that may be weak individually, but become strong when bound tightly together. And of course, the metaphor is that people, when they are collective, are stronger than just how they are individually. While Mussolini didn't initially seem interested in persecuting people because of their race, like Hitler was, um, and in fact, he saw racism was kind of ridiculous, um, he was certainly all for violence and war if it meant promoting Italian nationalism. Okay, So Mussolini felt that the collective should always take precedence over the individual. So he, he was a collectivist. This was, this was the, for, uh, the origins of fascism. Everything in the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state, he famously said. So individualism was discouraged, um, collectivism and the state was everything. Okay. And the people were there to serve the state, not the other way around. So individualism, forget it. Centralised state control was everything in fascism. Now, fall away from the bundle of sticks and you might just be snapped in half. Okay. But if some sticks happen to break, well, never mind. They were weak anyway, and it's just a few sticks, and we've got plenty more sticks. So the, the, the collective, the group, became everything, the tribe. And it's easy to feel superior to past peoples who were bombarded by a uh, monomaniacal leader of such charisma. But the drive for conformity and group identity is powerful in all of us, and some of us more than others. And anything powerful can be dangerous and misused. It's also easier to assume that a client's problems happen in a vacuum, but we uh, and our clients and everybody are all merged within groups and groups can start to act like mass personalities in their own right. So it's always worth asking ourselves, especially if a client identifies strongly with some group or other, what are the beliefs, ideals and assumptions of the group that they're part of? Is the group identity uh, dysfunctional in any way at all? Do they display violence or absolutist ideas? Okay. 
So a question to ask oneself are the decisions that you take, are they your decisions or are they your tribe's decisions? So Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Jim Jones, any cult leader, in fact, any leader at all, appeals to our innate instinct to merge with a greater group, be it a national or a political identity or a religious one. Um, you know, if we think about the idea of being stronger together, bundled sticks, the idea of fascism. As with all the basic emotional needs, some people have a greater drive to merge as part of a group identity than other people who tend to naturally be more individualistic. Ironically, the true individualists, the lone wolves, may be the very ones at the top of the heap getting everyone else to merge. Okay, so Stalin and, and Hitler and Jim Jones and, and all the rest um, were individualists, you know, but they got other people to join groups. So 20 million people can't be wrong. That's the idea, isn't it? You know, so many people doing this, it must be right. You know, some leaders are more benign, of course, than, than others, but they have one defining feature in common. They play on our innate human need for connection to something bigger than ourselves, to a tribe. Okay. It's hardwired within us. People may um, come to identify themselves through their tribe first and foremost. And this sounds noble or even selfless, but it can have great consequences. So they're not talking as themselves, they say, as a white man or as a, uh, you know, this or that faction. Okay, their tribe becomes more important than they are. If everyone's doing it, you know, you'll do it too, because it's the tribe has said it's okay. Okay. So we need to understand how desire for group membership and group think works in people because it can and often does work against the individual. So taking poison instead of medicine. Okay, this, this is what I'm going to talk about here. In this series, I explore the dark side of our innate human needs, how an emotional need can become so intense that we seek to meet it from anywhere that we can and we're not even aware that it is a need. You know, if we're dying of uh, dehydration, it may seem like a good idea in our desperation to drink engine oil. You know, it's a liquid. Uh, it seems almost like water, but it uh, puts our very lives at risk. and may even finish us off. Okay, so we're trying to meet a need in a way which is gonna backfire. Lonely people may be more likely to get sucked in by manipulative con artists or narcissists. After all, what is loneliness if not a thirst for connection, intimacy and attention? And they may become um, so thirsty, the need may become so great that they drink poison instead of water, so to speak. When we meet our needs in balance, we have spare capacity to be effective and fulfilled human beings. We have more autonomy, more independence. We're not driven so much and so easily malleable through our human drives. When our life provides us with emotional fulfillment, we become less vulnerable to being manipulated, led by the nose and ushered to the cliff's edge. And I think the entire human race needs to understand how this works and urgently. And it may be getting too late for us not to absorb the available psychological information as to how we're all manipulated by our innate needs and drives. A drive to meet an emotional need isn't good or bad, it just is. But any drive can be railroaded or diverted, and that's the problem. And when we look back at human history and what's happening now in the world, 
then we can quite clearly see how that works. We may be tempted to hand over autonomy to anyone who seems to meet our needs for meaning, togetherness, self-esteem, status, or whatever it is that we're lacking in our lives. Mind you, some level of drive for group togetherness is inherently healthy. It has and does keep us alive, and it has done historically. You know, you may be smarter than a lion, but you don't bite as hard or rip as ferociously or move as powerfully. You know, so as human beings developed, we had to evolve collectively. We had to form and live in tribes. We were stronger in groups than individually. Safety in numbers protected us against predators and maintained our position in the natural hierarchy of the uh, world around us. Organizing ourselves, uh, socializing made us strong and also able to survive and thrive. So that desire, that drive to be part of something, be part of a group or a tribe is uh, hardwired within us really. On the flip side, to uh, leave or be cast out from the tribe meant almost certain death. For many people, that's still a primal fear, to be rejected you know, is a, is a great fear of, you know, uh, people being cast out to not conforming or to saying something that goes against the tribal ideology. Recent research found that being ostracized by co-workers or a social group, uh, what some uh, call the social death penalty, is more injurious than being overtly bullied. Okay, bad for the health, bad for the mental and physical health. It seems that no attention or connection is worse than negative attention. Rejection registers in the brain in almost exactly the same way as physical pain does. On the positive side, being accepted and actively participating in a wider social network, a tribe, confers huge psychological and physical benefits upon us. Feeling mutually supported and feeling that you have some kind of status and the strength of the tribe is behind you is, is a wonderful thing to experience. And it sure must have felt wonderful for early members of the Nazi party. The power of being part of this new group that was going to bring Germany to the fore again and the power and the strength and you know it must be right because so many other people felt it. You know the feeling of being special, mutually supported, respected, even feared simply for being in your tribe. Feeling you suddenly had a respected identity um, must have felt overwhelming for some of the people who couldn't see through that. Now, the easy thing to do is to simply judge such people as evil, but that doesn't really explain anything. It's just superficial because most people aren't evil. Some people are, but most people aren't. They're followers. They're just fallen into the trap of following those who are evil. Okay, research shows that being in a group can make people lose touch with their own moral code. And this can happen incredibly fast. You know, people can do things in groups that they'd never dream of doing individually. This is sometimes called mob mentality. So we can get swept up in a uh, kinetic and sweeping wave of self-righteous rage that floods the whole group, spreads like wildfire, emotional wildfire. Sometimes it's not until years later that we even think to question what happened. How did I act like that? But the truth is, you didn't act like that alone. You were infected by the collective group. Sometimes we never reach that realization at all. People 
go to their graves feeling that their group identity was all and everything and infallible. The first step towards understanding the power of the group over individual mentality is, I think, not to assume it's only other people who could suffer from groupthink or group feel. So we're all susceptible at some level. Ultimately, we have to answer to ourselves whether we act as part of a group or not. Okay. So the danger of leaving our brains behind, okay, we all need to feel a sense of community, as I've said, a feeling that we're making a contribution to a cause beyond and greater than ourselves. And it's wonderful to have a sense that we have support from a collective unity. Uh, you know, this is a legitimate need and it is often, as I've said, positive, depending on who is running that group. Okay. And any situation that helps us focus less just on the self tends to make us feel better because our life takes on meaning. Focusing on oneself 24-7 uh, doesn't tend to give us meaning. It tends to make us lose touch with a sense of meaning. Also, ultimately, it never feels meaningful just to focus on one's own concerns either. And when life feels meaningful, we feel motivated and driven and therefore happier and energized day to day. But just because we have a real need doesn't mean we should hand over our rationality and individual judgment. Okay. A mark of maturity is to still retain individual morality and judgment even when one is part of a wider group. So 10 simple steps to dangerous conformity. Okay, so here are 10 ways in which the drive for social connection can backfire when we try to meet it indiscriminately. And you might recognize some of these, um, perhaps from your own experience and those of friends, relatives, or if you're a practitioner, even clients. So number one, lack purpose, social connection and meaning. People looking for purpose, safety and status may be more likely to follow any group that promises or seems to promise to meet these needs. The more disconnected and purposeless the person is, uh, the more susceptible they become to group manip manipulation. Okay, so the price of entry, the unsavory belief system of the group and its leaders. Okay, that's the price of entry. Okay, which might not seem a very big price to pay at the beginning, but bit by bit, can certainly prove to be. If you're lonely and everyone else seems to be taking drugs, then taking drugs is your price of entry, and it might seem a small price to pay, to enter the social network of the drug takers. The temptation isn't the drugs themselves, in this case, or even the excitement or criminality. It's a sense of community, of doing what others are doing. Okay, it could be hard to be an individual. Most people won't recognize that they joined a group because of their innate needs. They will rationalize other reasons for joining the group, perhaps. They may assume it's the ideals of the group that's attracted them. And indeed, it's worth remembering that all group ideologies involve feeling morally right and superior. Okay, the bad guys always think they're the good guys. Okay, people outside the group need to be demonized and diminished, um, and people inside the, the group need to be built up as, as, as more virtuous. Two, conform at all costs. The need to conform is, for many people, irresistibly strong and it can build steadily. Peer pressure feels like pressure, 
even if it's not stated overtly. Okay, so people give in to peer pressure because that's the price you pay to be a member of the tribe. Okay, and they do it because everyone else is doing it, or because the leader or other members of the group demand it, or even just imply it. Okay, it can be quite subtle. Um, there's, there's a short clip that I, I show uh, on the written version of this uh, in the article of just how conformity can happen on a physical level even with no apparent pressure. So if check out the uh, written version and click on, click on the link. Uh, Sally, a young client, told me how as a child she joined in with bullying her former best friend at school and uh, she told me that the girl had later committed suicide and that everyone else was doing it and I just went along with it, she told me. And she was extremely ashamed of that. Okay, not to say that she was directly responsible for the suicide of her, the eventual suicide of her friend, but she had joined in with the bullying. Conformity of language, ideas and dress are all signs that someone is handing over their personal identity to a larger group. But it's not just what we do on the outside that counts. Number three, put the group's aims above your own moral code. This is an essential step if you want to be uh, taken in by a group. We all know that some people are prepared to die for the greater good, which may actually be the greater bad, of the group. They, they make the ultimate sacrifice to be part of a group identity. This kind of self-destruction can take many forms, you know, perhaps a suicide vest or a one-way kamikaze flight. But it's not always that obvious. Some people may feel uh, so connected to, say, a group of drinkers or drug takers or dangerous thrill-seekers that in some sense the group becomes all-important to them. Loyalty to a counterculture that holds you back may maintain dysfunctionality or misery and it may even kill you. A drug overdose or accident may happen because the person felt they couldn't survive beyond or outside of a particular group. Yes, the drugs killed them, but maybe their forged identity as a drug addict or drinker was really to blame. Okay, groups can really do us in, just as not being in some groups can do us in. Of course, we need to exercise judgment. When we ask a drug, drug addict to stop taking drugs, we may also be asking them to forgo their whole community or even sense of purpose in life. So we have to take all of that into account. The addiction may be uh, to the group or lifestyle as much as the substance. And unless the needs uh, this group fulfills for that person can be met healthily elsewhere, any therapy is bound to fail. Number four. Let the group manipulate you using shame, threats, and promises. In order to indoctrinate, group dynamics must be highly emotional, both in language and in behavior. Interrelational emotions, such as shame, public shaming or outing, embarrassment and rivalry, are ramped up to the max in order to keep the focus on group identity. Hope for advancement within the group, the promise of reward or an increase in status, easily transforms into fear of loss of status, of being cast out, 
So hope and fear need to alternate uh, in order to indoctrinate the individual. Okay. Uh, if a group is using hope and fear, uh, quite obviously, then it's an indoctrinational group. It's a simple way of seeing it. The next step might be the most horrible of all. Step number five, denigrate outsiders. To strengthen group identity, there needs to be an enemy, real or imagined. On no account can outsiders be seen as being in any way like you are you, the people inside the group. The enemy is simplistically seen as bad. And this process of denigrating outsiders strengthens group identity, gives the group purpose, and prevents dissent, because people become too scared or scared to be seen as like the outsiders. Ideas that are not part of the group's ideological lexicon or dogma are not tolerated. Opposing groups or individuals are labelled as bad or mad or stupid or simply misguided. They're regularly blamed and shamed and belittled and in some cases dehumanised. And dehumanising and therefore objectifying outsiders is the first step towards justified violence. And we've seen this time and time again um, throughout history. You know, the Nazis described and depicted Jewish people as rats. Okay, so they're not even people, they're rats, and rats can be um, cleared out. Back in the 1990s, in the Rwandan genocide, uh, with, with the murder of between half and one million Tutsis, uh, over just a period of 100 days, the Tutsis were repeatedly described as cockroaches. Okay, so when you liken the enemy to vermin, to rats or cockroaches, it's not hard to convince people they should be exterminated. You know, rats, uh, cockroaches, squares, commies, fascists, unbelievers, the list goes on. You label and denigrate the outsider. Outsiders may become no more than one-dimensional objects. And once the outgroup is objectified, violence can swiftly follow because objects can be disposed of. Okay, we're not even dealing with human beings anymore. We're dealing with objects. And we can uh, have loose affiliations to many groups, of course, but the more power a group has over an individual's life, the more they'll start to fall into a repetitive pattern. Step number six to completely becoming subsumed within a group, partake of frequent ritualistic repetitive activities. Ritual repetition and provocation of collective emotion are all indoctrination techniques. Okay, so this is to say that some ritual isn't highly valuable or is even vital to people. But it's also true to say that any group, even one professing to be atheist, can behave like a religion in the way it organises its activities and engineers the beliefs of its adherents. And again, some groups that do this have a positive effect on people and communities. Belief engineering through ritual occurs in all types of strong groups. Okay? And there are other reasons for ritual as well that aren't to do with just belief engineering. Step number seven, blindly defer to authority. So for some people, leaders may come to replace a father or a mother or even a god figure. And this can confer a warm sense of security. You know, after all, if everything is taken care of by someone um, who knows better than me, life becomes simple, just like when I was very little. Okay. 
It's a warm, secure feeling that someone has all this wisdom and knowledge. American social scientist Stanley Milgram showed that ordinary people are often prompted to do horrible things simply because they're told it's okay or even desirable by a clear authority figure, which can be just someone wearing a white coat. If mummy or daddy says it's okay, then it must be okay. Just as if everyone else is doing it, it must be okay for me to do it too. Okay. Step number eight, use not just groupthink, but also group speak. I mentioned the F word at the beginning of this video, and that word, as in many other words, proves just how powerful language can be. And some words are not polite to use in society, and people are genuinely shocked by this little portion of sound that comes out of the mouth. Only individualists or leaders use original language, using carefully curated to their own advantage, but followers need to use the language that they're told they can use. Other members of the group are so strongly conditioned to follow that they'll naturally adopt the same system of language as the leader. And everyone starts to sound the same and use the same words. The stronger a group identity, the more the same all its members start to sound when they communicate. Just talk like everyone else and you'll be fine if you want to stay within the group. Okay. Nine, on no account try to understand outside perspectives. So ideally, subsist in your in-group echo chamber and don't leave it, or even try to understand sound from beyond the echo chamber. Don't listen to dissenting, conflicting, or unorthodox or unfamiliar ideas. And in fact, actively shut down or otherwise drown out ideas which conflict with your own group thought. And don't even try to understand why other people might even have other ideas. Okay, there is no reality beyond the group. Okay, and outsiders are just mad or deranged or ill-informed, okay, or morally inferior to those within the in-group. Finally, step 10, lose your mind in mob mentality. As the uh, writer, Gustave Le Bon, observed in his uh, seminal book, The Crowd, a study of the popular mind, individual intelligence and reasoning can be lost when caught up in a mob for many people, not for everybody. There's always exceptions. So the mob takes on a will of its own, like some kind of raving beast, uh, whether it's Lenin, Mussolini, uh, Freud, uh, Stalin were all fans of Le Bon's work and all studied it, okay, and perhaps used it to ill effect in the 20th century. Belonging to a group can make us more prepared to do violence because the mob wills that violence. Okay, and now for the sake of balance, three steps to resisting group mentality. Step number one, understand how it works. Without an understanding of how group psychology works, Humanity is condemned to make the same mistakes over and over and over again throughout history, forever into the future. This is what psychology is for, to make us wiser. Number two, meet your needs for connection in healthy ways, ways that don't damage you or other people. This will give you spare capacity. You won't be so thirsty that you end up drinking whatever is offered to you. 
And number three, maintain objectivity. Stay calm and use your psychological knowledge. Recognize what is really going on above and beyond slogans, propaganda, whipped up emotionality, and the us and them mentality. The need to connect to larger groups is powerful and inherent. Understanding how group psychology works frees us up to see it operating in everyday life within ourselves and those around us. Seeing the part that group psychology plays in the formation and maintenance of emotional and behavioral problems is vital in order to protect ourselves collectively, as in the whole human race, from extinction. Okay, so in some ways we are stronger together, but strength without compassion, fairness, calmness, open-mindedness, and an understanding of human nature is worse than useless, as history has repeatedly shown. And it's time that we learned our lessons. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. (laughs) 